0: We're starting a two-week series on doubt, and we might have time to get into small groups here today to let you discuss, but there's questions on the app for your family. There's questions. You could take some of these that they'll be discussing in their small group next week and jump into it. And think about doubt. You know, the thing that popped in my mind first was this idea, and some of you may actually do it, especially if you have younger kids, this idea of elf on a shelf. You remember, you know, elf on a shelf, Christmas time. we have some friends that used to live across from the street from us that they did they do elf on a shelf. That's not what they do. I just thought that was funny that saw pictures of it. And give you a picture if you've ever seen, you know, that's the elf. The idea is if you don't have small kids, you don't know what it is. The elf goes somewhere in your house and basically he spies on your kids to be good during the month of December because when your kids go to bed, the elf goes back to the North Pole and reports back to Santa and comes back in the morning to a new spot in your house. Well, our family's never done it because one, I can't afford the extra little gifts that the elf is supposed to bring 20 days before Christmas. And um, to be honest, the elf would stay in the same spot for four or five days till I remembered. And third, he's creepy in my mind, weird. but I mean, more power to you if you do Elf on a Shelf, our friends did. Well, since our kids didn't do it, we had this dilemma one Christmas. It was about three years ago, maybe. Emerson, my, my, my five-year-old, was probably two and a half, somewhere around there. And we're over at our friend's house. We're in the backyard. We've got a fire going. We've, we've roasted marshmallows with the kids. And now the kids are inside playing. And from, out, from, from outside, we hear, we're outside, we hear inside this like blood curdling scream from one of the girls. And so everybody jumps up and we run in and our neighbor's daughter, who at the time is about six, I mean, is snot, crying, I mean, just beside herself. It's like weeping and gnashing of teeth, biblical proportions. And, and you, know, you your heart's kind of racing, what's going on? And we look and Emerson who's like two and a half, has got, she's like holding the elf. <laughs> well, with elf on a the shelf, the, apparently the rule is if you touch the elf, then all the magic goes away and he doesn't go back to Santa Claus to report back. Well, we don't do elf on a shelf. So the two my 2-year-old thinks it's a doll. That's I mean, it's a, what does a 2-year-old girl do but play with a doll? And then here comes the 6-year-old who and I mean it's like Christmas has ended because Elfie can't go back and report. And so, I mean, that mom, she was, she was quick. She was like, listen, we will write a note and we'll send it explaining that Emerson didn't know. And I'm sure Santa will forgive and, and everything. So that kind of dries up the tears. But while all this is happening, in the case, Rayleigh, who's my oldest, who's about the same age, walks up to me and, and she kind of looks around and she goes, <laughs> she thinks that's real. Which was highly ironic because at the time, Rayleigh still believed in Santa Claus. I mean, so like, yeah, you got it all figured out, wink, wink, you know. <laughs> at some point in all of our lives, doubt shows up. And, and, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, it, it, we feel like it is, but it doesn't have to be. But it starts in small things like that, but it grows into bigger things. I remember uh, as a college student, when, when the girlfriend that I had kind of through high school and the first part of college, when we broke up, I, I, re- I really believed that she was the one. And I remember having the, the doubt that there will never be, there will never be a person more right for me than she was. That, was he- that wasn't elf on a shelf doubt. That was heavy doubt. I mean, I, I was looking at not, not experiencing love for the rest of my life in my mind. You might've at one point, you know, when you were younger or, or had a teenager get their SAT scores and all of a sudden doubt set in. Like, I will never go to college. You know, this, this is impossible. Or it might've been something heavier, uh, losing a loved one, a-, a parent or a spouse or a child or a friend that's passed away. And it was in those moments, if you were really, doubt was heavy. How could God, who is all good, all loving and all powerful, allow this to happen? That, that is real life. Doubt is, is thick in moments like that. And unfortunately, doubt gets, this, gets a bad rap. That when we, when we, when we feel, most of us don't want to come in and talk about our doubt. Most of us don't want to come in and, and say, hey, I've got some, some questions, especially when it comes to things of, of the spiritual nature, right? We don't want to come into our small group and go, hey, I'll be really honest with you guys. I'm kind of in a stage of my life where I don't even know if God exists because we're afraid that, you know, we're going to be like strung up and marched out of the church and we can't be a apart. And, and so doubt has this negative connotation to us. In fact, it makes us feel like we're ignorant or, or less than everybody else. And part of that is, is we look at people who are leaders. We look at people who are strong and, and we see them as decisive. We see them as, as people of action. We see them as people who don't doubt. Leaders don't doubt. Leaders make decisions and they go and they believe it and they go after it. And, and so I'm not like that because I'm wrestling with some doubt in my life. But in reality... God has wired us in such a way that we do doubt and it's not a bad thing. Imagine, imagine if as a young person, you never started doubting the existence of, of Santa Claus. That never happened. And you made it through junior high and high school and actually had some friends. I mean, let's just, and that would be hard to believe if that was, you know, if you were like, What's the guy's name? You know, uh, that Will Ferrell plays, the Elf and Elf. You know, if you have that kind of Christmas mystique, you know, people would look at you like you're crazy. I mean, imagine, and then you have kids. Do you know how much counseling your kids would go through when every year kids were waiting for Santa as were mom and dad? And every year the explanation was when you run out into the living room was, we must have been bad one more year. I mean, your kids would be broken, you know? I mean, they'd be in in prison at 15 because, I mean, there's just the the amounts of counseling and devastation. Doubt's not a bad thing. Doubt allows us to take ideas and wrestle through them to arrive at at truth. But when it comes to spiritual things, it's hard. And sometimes we struggle because doubt shows up in ways um, that are difficult for us. Some of us doubt and we face doubt because we've placed our faith into a belief, a, a personal belief about God that isn't necessarily true. For, for example, talking about, um, I, I hear this a lot. My grandfather or, w- was sick and I was close to my grandfather and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed, and I prayed that God would heal him and God didn't. I kind of referenced that a minute ago. And now I, I doubt. And what, w- The problem was the person, that young person or maybe adult had this idea, this belief about God. And it looked like this, God is loving, which he is. And if I pray, God will do whatever I ask him to do. I don't know if you know this, but that's not true. You see that, that would be true if you were God and God was your servant rather than vice versa. But sometimes we get these these ideas that are theologically incorrect, these ideas about God. We expect God to do something because of an errant belief we have. And when God doesn't show up like we think he should, we doubt. There's a a guy, his name is Steve Saint. And uh, Steve's father was a missionary. His father was a, a guy named Nate Saint. If you've ever seen the movie End of the Spear, uh, or read the book, the story of the five missionaries several years ago who went to take the gospel to this indigenous tribe in Ecuador. Um, if you have, There's a movie called End of the Spear. It is worth finding and watching as a family. I'm not a big fan of Christian movies usually. This one is phenomenally done. Um, and a great movie, End of the Spear. And it's the story of these guys. It's the story of Nate Saint and four of his friends. They went to take the gospel to this tribe in Ecuador who had never been reached, had never seen people from outside of, uh, of their jungle area they live. And the end of the story, I'm not taking away from it. You'll, you'll find out pretty soon. They, they kill all five missionaries. Steve Saint's dad was one of those missionaries. And Steve said, for years, for years I wrestled with, why would God allow my dad, who loved Jesus, who gave up, his life and his career to go be a missionary for Jesus, a dad who went to people that no one else would go to. Why did God allow my dad to pass away? And he said, I wrestled with that off and on through, throughout the course of my life. It brought doubt in. You fast forward 30 years into Steve's life. Steve is in Mali, Africa, and his car breaks down in this desert area. And, and it's, uh, he knows I've got, to, I've, got, I can't, I've got to figure out something to do. I, I'm in a bad spot to, to be without a vehicle. So he goes to the nearest village he finds and begins asking people uh, around if there's a local church. Cause that's the only thing he knows to do, if there's a local church, maybe he can help. And some kids, some little kids take him to this mud brick hut where a guy in, these, in this flowing robe comes out, his name's Noo. Nowu invites Steve into the hut and he sees a poster on the wall, it's got a cross and the cross is being held by two hands with holes in them. And Nou, he finds out is the local pastor of this community. And Noah begins to help him. But, but before the help arrives, they're having this conversation. And, and Noo is telling Steve St. his story. How he became a believer, a follower of Jesus. How he grew up in a Muslim home and how, how his parents disowned him when he became a follower of Jesus. How his mother, not once, but twice, tried to poison him at family meals to kill him because of his faith in Jesus. And he began to tell story upon story upon story. And, and Steve said, let me ask you this question. I mean, you've given, you've, you everything. You've left your family for the gospel and you're here. You know, what, how is it? What does it take to keep you going? And Nooos told him a story. He said, well, the missionaries who led me to faith and provided me the Bibles, they've also given me books. And they've given me books of people who have been martyred for their faith. And my favorite story of all is about five men who went to Ecuador and gave their lives for the gospel. And Steve St. said it was, you know, it was that moment that all of a sudden I realized God is bigger than I thought him to be. Sometimes we place our faith into an idea of God that's not true and it causes doubt. Sometimes we, we have doubt because we've placed our faith in someone else. It's, it's a parent, a grandparent, a religious leader, a pastor, and they don't live up to our expectations or, or maybe they, they fail Epically. And all of a sudden now we have doubt because we go, man, I looked up to them and, and they were my model, not Jesus, but they were my model and, and they fell. What does that mean? Sometimes we doubt because of intellectual issues. That, that's probably the, the one that sits in front of our teenagers. They get ready to go to the university world. Not every university is that way, but they have the opportunity to, to be exposed to ideas and, and, and thoughts that don't, don't come from a Christian worldview. The intellectual things are thrown out there and it begins to make us question and wonder. I share with teenagers all the time. I was in an online conversation with a gentleman and and one of the things he said, he said, what is the most, what's the, what's the foundation of what you believe? And I didn't want to answer the question because I was like, I don't, it sounds like a trick question. I said, well, what do you think it is? And he said, well, the resurrection of Jesus. I said, okay, I'll, I'll grant you that. The resurrection of Jesus is the most important thing to the Christian faith because Jesus not only defeated death on the cross, but he defeated it for all when he resurrected. Okay, done. And he says this to me, and this was, this was 10, 12 years. I mean, I'm at a seminary at the time. He says, he says, well, if you take the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you believe, and you go to the story of the resurrection and you try to place them in order chronologically using those four, it's impossible. And I went, okay, challenge accepted because I went to seminary and you didn't. <laughs> so I go and pull out Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, start timelining them out, start putting them into chronological order, and lo and behold, irreconcilable. And I'm going, huh, interesting. And it's at moments like that, that you hear that, a student hears that, or I heard that and go, wow, I didn't know, okay, never, never knew that. That's interesting. Now, I'll give you the, I'll give you the end because I don't want to leave you there before we move on. This is all free. You don't have to pay for this part of it. Because <laughs> it, it does tie into what we're going to talk about at the end of what we do with doubt. I did know that there were answers. I didn't know the answers. All of a sudden, he's presented me with something that causes doubt, but I knew there were answers, so I started to go back and started to, to research and read, well, okay, what, what, what is said about this? And what I discovered was this. Most uh, well, not most, almost all scholars and even scholars who are not Christian say this, had the four gospels lined up perfectly, that should have and would have shed more doubt on the story than if they didn't. And I give this example to teenagers all the time. When I was in, in, living in Germany, we had a, a rule in our family that before you went out on Saturday to go hang out with your friends, you had to do your chores for the week. I was in charge of dusting. Brian, my middle brother, was in charge of vacuuming. Brad, my oldest brother, was in charge of bathrooms. And Saturday morning rolls around and my my brother's leaving. His friend Dan Conroy showed up and they're walking out the door to go hang out. And my mom's walking in the door from shopping or something like that. And she stops my brother and she says, have you done your chores? Have you vacuumed? And he goes, yes, ma'am, I vacuumed already. And she goes, well, how did you vacuum? Because the vacuum cleaner's broken. And he goes, I know. We lived in military housing with this real tight, you know, Cheap rugs, cheap carpet. And he's goes. well, I know, I pulled out, it didn't work, so I got the broom and I, I swept off the carpet because I knew the vacuum cleaner was broken. And she goes, honey, the vacuum cleaner's not broken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yes, asked my brother. Now, in this story, this, I mean, we've had this argument for, for 20 years now. Not, this isn't a new argument. My mom and I remember that happening. I remember where I was sitting in our living room in Germany. My brother, if you ask him this day, he'll tell you I'm lying to him, to you. He'll tell you that we had come back from Germany and we were living back in Killeen and that we were in our game room. And he was talking about that carpet and he was walking out the garage door, not the front door. And Dan Conroy, who was with us in Germany, had moved back to Killeen. And so that he was still both in those stories. And my brother swears to this day that we were in Killeen. My mom and I swear we were in Germany the discrepancy came about within five years of the story, maybe 10, two different continents. Now, if I tell those stories and I go, hey, my brother says it happened in America. I say it happened in Europe. No one, in their right mind would go, well, your stories don't match up. So that event must have never happened. You wouldn't say that. Since you can't get your continents correct within 10 years, that must have never happened. Well, that's the idea behind this gospel. Since, since Peter remembers the story from his perspective a different way and John remembers from his story 30 years after the event, when they're not actually trying to write a minute by minute account, that wasn't their goal. So they're not going and going, hey guys, how did it happen? They're just telling their story as they remember it. Because the point of the story is the resurrection, not who got there first. Doesn't mean that the account didn't happen. And what scholars will tell you, even non-Christian scholars, was that had all the accounts matched up exactly 30 years after the fact, that would have shed more doubt from a scholarly perspective than what we have now. Oh. But those intellectual questions can cause doubt. I want you to go to John chapter 3. We're going to run through kind of a, not really a character study, but we're going to look at a story of a guy. And what we're going to find out is this. Kind of our bottom line for, for this week as you're talking with kids and as, as you're talking about doubt is doubt. Doubt actually is the pathway or it paves the way to faith. Doubt is a good thing because doubt is, is what causes us to start moving forward and starts giving us deeper faith. It makes our faith stronger. So I want you to turn to John chapter three. I want you to pick up the story of a man named Nicodemus. And here's how the story goes in verse, starting in chapter three, verse one. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, here's what's happening Nicodemus is a respected leader. He's a religious, like a pastor. And he's watched Jesus and he sees that Jesus, there's something pretty incredible about Jesus, but Jesus is not in with these religious leaders. They look down upon him. So Nicodemus has some doubts. He's got some questions. He, he's, he wants to move from where he is towards truth, but he comes at night to Jesus because he doesn't want to be seen in the light of day talking to Jesus. So he comes to Jesus and he greets Jesus. He says, hey, teacher, you know, we know that you're a rabbi. We know that you're doing things from God. That's a, a normal greeting. It would be like you meeting somebody for, for the first time and going, oh, Evan, nice to meet you. Tom tells me you're like one of the sharpest guys in our, in our industry. That, that's what, he says, Jesus, we've heard great things about you. You're a rabbi. And then Jesus gets all awkward. And, and instead of Jesus responding like, hey, Nicodemus, I've heard about you too. You know, it's great to see. You. Jesus goes, you know, you can't see the kingdom of God till you're born again. Nicodemus like, what? <laughs> hey, good to see you. Jesus heard me. You know, you must be born again before you see the kingdom. It's, it's awkward conversation starts. And, and you imagine Nicodemus standing there like, oh, well, hello to you too. You know, like what? And then, and then Nicodemus is well, what do you what do you mean? He just kind of jumps right back in. And he goes, what do you mean? How, uh, how am I? How, I don't know how Nicodemus is. I'm speaking for myself. I'm almost 40. Uh, how do I go back into my mother's womb to be born again? And the conversation goes a little bit further and then it ends. And we don't find anything in John chapter three that tells us that Nicodemus has any resolution to his doubters' his questions. In fact, he came with questions of who Jesus was. He came with doubts. I don't want to post you, He left with more. All of a sudden he came wanting to know, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you, are you the one? And he leaves with, I've got to figure out how to be born again. Is this guy really on the up and up? And, and he leaves, I'm guessing, I'm doing a little uh, imagining here, that, that Nicodemus leaves with, with more doubt than he had answers. Fast forward to John chapter seven. Nicodemus shows up in the story again. Look in John chapter seven, verse 47. Actually, we'll go back, pick up some of the story. Well, let's catch you on the story. There's a debate over who Jesus is and, and the Pharisees are there and they're upset because some people are questioning, if, is, is he a prophet? Is he the Messiah? And then in verse 45, we see this. It says, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Meaning, why didn't you arrest Jesus and bring him to us? The officers answered, no one has ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So they're going, hey, Jesus is especially saying some incredible things. And the Pharisees say, are you kidding? The religious leaders have not vouched for him. And look what happens in verse 50. Look who speaks up, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, what we just read, and who was one of them said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Nicodemus leaves with doubt comes with doubt, leaves with more doubt. And then we find him a few chapters later. And in the middle of his friends, he's got to be politically correct. But when they're going, hey, this guy, Jesus, he's a fraud. Nicodemus is the one that stands up. And he he says, he, he verbalizes the process that he's been going through. Shouldn't we at least listen? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we give ear to what he's saying? Shouldn't we lean in and, and instead of just making a judgment that just says, no, he can't be the Messiah because we've already predetermined this, this, and this. Maybe we should lean in. Maybe we should let our doubt pave the way for us to find out if this is worth believing or not. And he gets rebuked for it. And Nicodemus shows up one more time in John chapter 19. You can flip there. Verse 38. Jesus has died on the cross. And it is burial, John chapter 19, verse 38. It says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body, verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Nowhere in scripture do we get a whole lot of Nicodemus. Nowhere do we find out that Nicodemus had a, a point in his life where he came and his doubts were all answered and he placed his faith in Jesus. We don't have that. So I am doing a little theological imagining again, but I wanna line out some evidences for you of what's happened here. Nicodemus has come and he has doubt, but we find out later that he leans into that. He tells the the other Pharisees, listen, figure it out. Don't just assume if you have doubt, try to get to the bottom of it. Let, let, Let doubt pave the way to your faith and figure out if there's truth there or not. And then at the end, Jesus has died And where are his disciples? The guys that have spent three years walking with him, seeing everything. Nicodemus has seen some things. The disciples have seen everything. They've scattered for fear. And you know, for doubt. How did this happen? Didn't Jesus say that like, he was was gonna be the Messiah. He was gonna be the new king. False understanding of the right theology. Disciples had it. Caused doubt. Have Have we been following the wrong thing all this? And they they disappear. Everyone's gone except for two people, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus of all people, we, we see that Joseph of Arimathea has been a secret follower of Jesus because of the Jews. But Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Anything that Nicodemus does that's not by the cover of night is seen by everybody. He's a leader of all the people that had something to lose when Jesus has died when he wasn't supposed to, when they thought he might be the Messiah, he'd become the the physical king of the Jews. Nicodemus is the one that shows up to take care of the body. I don't know because the scripture doesn't tell us, but I find it very hard to believe that a man of Nicodemus' stature and reputation would show up to bury Jesus when doubt was at its all time high, even amongst his own disciples, unless somewhere along the way between that cover of night to that day, that Nicodemus' faith hadn't been bolstered by his doubt. Could be wrong. But what we do know is this, doubt paves the way towards our faith. So here's what we do. Let me give you two things. And these, these are things that you, you can do. First thing is this, ask, ask the hard questions. You've got some. You've got hard questions about theology and faith and God and Jesus and how he works. And and we don't want to vocalize those. For one, we're afraid like Nicodemus, we might be judged by our peers. We don't want to vocalize those things because we might be seen by our kids as less than the leader of of our faith home. But it's okay. Doubt is okay. Your kids have them, you have them, I have them. It's okay to vocalize that. Say, hey, here's a hard question I don't know the answer to. Sometimes we're afraid to vocalize those things because we're afraid that if we go and vocalize those things and somebody gives us an answer, the answer may be not, maybe not what we want it to be. And all of a sudden our safe world might get rocky. But here's the truth. All truth is God's truth. You don't have to worry about that. Ask those hard questions. There's a man and I don't, if you follow apologetics, you might've heard of him. His name's Anthony Flew. He's passed away. But Anthony Flew for years was the leading atheist around the world. He was the Richard Dawkins of his time. Philosopher, um, educated, would travel and debate, wrote a book, There Is No God. And about 10 years before Anthony Flew passed away, he shocked the religious and atheist worlds because he went from being an atheist to a believer in God. The foremost authority on atheism admitted that he now believed that there was a God and wrote a new book called There Is A God rather than There Is No God. And one of the things that he said he wrestled with uh, as he was a philosopher and wanted to chase after truth and wanted to, to find the answers was, was this idea that that the world, that existence could come from happenstance, that it could come from chance. The idea that had been proposed to him by other atheists was that, that if you had an infinite amount of time and an infinite amount of material that at some point along the way, life could happen. And so uh, yeah. the, the illustration went this way. If you put an infinite amount of monkeys in a room with an infinite amount of computers, with an infinite amount of time, at some point they would type out a Shakespearean sonnet. That, that was kind of the idea. just infinite time, infinite material. You could get life. Well, research was done by a group in Britain and they took six monkeys and not an infant, put six monkeys in a computer in a room, in a cage and came back a month later and the monkeys had typed out 50 pages of text. Here's what they discovered. In the 50 pages, there was not one word. With the understanding that I or a space and an I and a space would be a word. 50 pages, not one word anywhere in the midst. And it was that hard question that Anthony Flew started to wrestle with and ask of of ultimate existence. Now he was asking it from an atheist standpoint, not a, a Christian, but he was asking that hard question and it caused doubt in his life. It caused doubt in his intellect and that doubt was what paved the way to this renowned atheist becoming a believer in God. Now, as far as we know, he never became a follower of Jesus. But he admitted that God exists. And that's the only explanation I can give for the beginning. Hard questions are okay. You don't have to be afraid of them. Again, all truth is God's truth. Go after the truth. And that's our second point. Ask the hard questions, but then be faithful enough to go after the answers. You see, that's what I see all the time. I see, I hear stories of of teachers in our local schools and even teenagers. They've heard one thing thrown out to them. Well, such and such, and usually it's an intellectual thing. This and this and this is true. And it's caused this doubt. And in reality, they've grasped onto that, but they've never done the hard work of chasing the answer to the end. They've never gone, you know what? I'm going to go see, I'm going to go read, I'm going to go ask some questions to find out this thing that's caused me doubt, reconciling the resurrection of the gospels. I'm going to do the work to find out what really is true. And again, sometimes we're afraid. Well, what if we find out that evolution really is real? And then all of a sudden, what do I do? Because I've, I've kind of discounted it. I'll tell you this, evolution has a lot of problems on a scientific level. Not, not a, you can throw religion and the Bible out and not even have the debate and you can win the evolution argument based on science alone. The only reason why it's still around is because when you have a naturalistic worldview, like most scientists have, there's no other alternative. There's no other plan B. So we have to stick with plan A and hold on to it as tightly as we can, even though it's falling apart around us. Because the only other answer from plan A is to take a, and adopt a supernatural worldview and a scientist who's been trained in a naturalistic worldview can't do that. So it's not, it's not about faith and science. It's about science and science. Again, that's free. You don't have to pay for that. Um, but we've got to chase after the answers and we've got to go find them and be faithful to understanding what is true. You know, William Lane Craig, Christian apologist, Richard Dawkins, again, today's foremost atheist who's written all kinds of books and he's the new, new atheism. Do you know, here's what people don't know. William Lane Craig has offered multiple times over and over again to to debate Richard Dawkins. Name the time and place we'll get together and we'll debate. You know, Richard Dawkins has declined every time. He's afraid to have the debate with William Lane Craig. Do you know that there are guys like Gary Habermas who's at Liberty University and a friend of mine who took class with him. Habermas is an incredible apologist. My friend asked him, he said, hey, how many times when you go and do debates? They go and debate places and and a debate isn't just an argument. In a formal debate, there's a winner that's declared. There's either a panel of judges or the audience votes and decides who gave the most intellectual reasoning, the the best argument. Havermas has debated, debated atheist upon atheist upon atheist all across the country. My buddy asked him, he said, hey, how many times, have, how many times do you win? How many times do you lose? And he said, my friend said, Havermas looked at him, he said, it was like he had never even thought through that before. And he said, you know, and he wasn't being prideful. He said, I, I've never lost. Truth is out there. You don't have to be afraid of the hard questions. Go after it. And what you'll find is that your doubt paves the way to faith. But I, I will say this. There will always be questions that you don't know the answers to, always will be. There's always gonna be things that we can't give a, a, a good answer because some of it is faith. That, that's just true. But we look at the evidences. Years ago, my nephew and niece who are now, one's in college and one's gonna come graduate in high school real soon, when they were little kids. Um, I mean, Sarah was like diapers toddling around. Devin, my nephew came to my brother and knocked on his door and he said, "Dad." Sarah has colored all over the, the, the door. And so Brian walks out and he looks out and there, somebody's taken marker or crayon and they've colored all over the door. Brian didn't see it happen. All he has is Devin's, you know, tattling saying, hey, Sarah did it and Devin's getting her in trouble. And so Brian walks over and he looks at it and he says, Sarah, come in here. And Sarah toddles into the room and he hands her a crayon. He says, Sarah, I want you to go color on that door. And Sarah toddles up to the door and she reaches her hand up. He says, I want you to reach as high as you can. And she reaches her hand up as high as she can and she's below all of the coloring. And Brian looks at Devin and he goes, Huh, interesting, your sister can't reach that. And Devin looked at him without missing meaning. He goes, yeah, I know. I think she got the stool out of the bathroom. (laughs) Didn't see it. There's some reasoning that could be an explanation. But when you take all the evidences and you line them out, it's not that hard to find truth. But understand this, doubt does pave the way to believe. But doubt's not bad, it's okay. Mother Teresa, a modern day saint, if there ever was one, who at 18 years old, went to India, who served 69 years in the slums of India, who started uh, her, her mission that is now in over 123 different countries. She won a Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, she was the face of social justice and Christianity through the 20th century. 10 years after she died, 1997. So in 2007, Time Magazine released an article about Mother Teresa. And in it, they revealed some letters that she had written to friends along the way through her lifetime. And in in her letter, she expressed her questions and her doubt. Some of her questions is, is heaven real? Is Jesus real? Other ones that were equally as deep. Mother Teresa, Right? I mean, if somebody called you Mother Teresa, you'd take that as a compliment. Doubted. Had questions about faith. It's okay. But ask the hard questions. Let those questions drive you to the answers and let doubt become a pathway to faith. My hope for you this week, as you talk with your teenagers, and we'll talk about this with them on Wednesday night, is that you'll use that, yeah, there's some questions, there's an idea in there to do as a family about building some some markers along the way from your faith journey. Do some of those things, but don't let this, this concept of doubt or the hard questions that your kids might ask cause you to shy away from the spiritual conversation. They're gonna ask you questions you don't know. People ask me questions that I don't know. But when they ask me those questions, it's helped me to move further in my faith. How are we doing on time? So not real well, okay. Um, Then we won't have our small group questions. Um, But I want to encourage you to have those questions at home. It's a good thing. Don't be afraid. Here's something you can do. Write down some hard questions you have. Let your kids add to those hard questions. And then as a family, go figure out the answers. Don't be afraid because all truth is God's truth and it'll lead you closer to Jesus.